You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. A scripture reading this morning is taken from the Gospel according to Luke chapter 7. We begin our reading at verse 11 and conclude it at verse 35. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When Jesus saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. The news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back. And report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind. If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written... I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. 
The son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. I preach to you this morning from the word of our God as you find it in the next part of Luke's gospel, the verses 36 to 50, where it continues, Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to him, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. She's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him five hundred denarii, the other fifty. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her sins, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, at the beginning of this worship service, I brought you the greetings from believers in China and Australia. And as you may know, the principal reason for going to China once again was to teach. And it has to be said that it was once again a most exciting and challenging time teaching members of the persecuted house churches in China. What made it so exciting once again was all of the questions and the topics and the issues that were discussed whether they were biblical or theological, social or practical, there were a huge, huge number of them. Hour after hour, day after day. And among all those questions that were asked, there were also some that were of, you might say, a more detailed and technical nature. 
And one of them had to do with parables. There is in China, it appears, a great confusion about what to do exactly with parables. That confusion originates from the teachings of the official government-recognized church and its seminary, where there is a great confusion between the difference between parables and other forms of speaking in the Bible. So the question that we spent a considerable amount of time on, especially in connection with how to read and interpret the Bible, was what is a parable? How are we supposed to interpret and how are we to apply a parable? And of course that brings us to our text of this morning. Where in our text of this morning we find a parable. Well, what is a parable? Well, there are any number of ways, beloved, in which you can describe or define a parable. A parable is a short story, you can say, with a hidden or spiritual meaning. Or a parable is a simple story illustrating a moral or religious lesson. Or still another, a parable is a verbal stick of dynamite with an indiscriminate fuse. You just never know exactly when it will explode in your face. Ask Simon. Or a parable is a good yarn in which the unknown is explained by the known. So, beloved, there are many definitions of parables. But for our purposes together this morning, perhaps it's best to define a parable as an ingenious figure of speech, usually a short story of everyday life, which teaches a singular spiritual truth as well at the same time as suggesting other subordinate truths. And so it's with that kind of a definition in mind that we look at our parable this morning, the parable of the two debtors, and we shall see a repentant prostitute demonstrates her gratitude, a reactionary Pharisee tries to hide his disgust, a responsive Savior pronounces his Forgiveness. Well, beloved, as we turn to our text, we can tell that the Lord Jesus Christ has once again been very busy. Busy teaching, busy performing miracles, busy especially preaching the liberating news of the kingdom of God. And everyone, it seems, is impressed and awed by what he says and by what he does. And that awe for our Savior spreads far and wide. It even takes in a certain Pharisee, a man by the name of Simon. Simon who invites the Lord Jesus to come into his house. The Lord Jesus accepts his invitation. And at the appointed time, he enters the house of this particular man, It appears that the meal is ready to be served. The Savior and the others who are with him prepare to eat, but as you may know, they do not sit down to do so. Rather, they recline. In the Middle East, the center of the room would have been spread with a large table, a large low table. And on all sides of that table, there would be low couches, 
And the guests would recline, leaning probably on the left or right elbow, around the table, and with the free hand they would partake of the food, and so eat. And so in this manner it appears the meal to which our Savior has been invited begins. But beloved, something is missing. There has been a glaring omission. Probably you and I don't notice it. But if you happen to be someone who has been raised in the Middle East, you would have noticed it instantly. For the normal courtesies given to a visiting rabbi have been omitted. The host did not bother to wash the feet of Rabbi Jesus. He didn't even make water available for him to wash his own feet. Neither did he extend the customary kiss of greeting. And in addition, he had not even bothered to anoint his guest with oil. So you see, beloved, as we read this part of Scripture, we need to understand the Lord Jesus has been invited to a banquet. Well, what an invitation. What a reception he receives. Actually, it's insulting. Well, you know that even in our less formal, structured Western society, there are certain traditional pleasantries observed when one receives guests. The guest is welcomed at the door, invited in. Their coats are taken and put away. An invitation is extended to enter further and to sit down. And if all of these customs are not observed in the case of a guest of honor, then the insult would still be unmistakable. People would ask themselves, where in the world are your manners? Did you never learn any proper etiquette? But yet, beloved, as this is taking place, you can be sure that other people noticed it, not only the guests who were in the room, but also many others. For you see, in the Middle East, a banquet is never a purely private affair, but it always tends to be a rather public spectacle. There's no real privacy for the guests. The door is always open. There's always a great lot of coming and going of traffic. No doubt the villagers are looking in and taking it all in. And surely this is especially the case because this is Jesus. His reputation, his preaching has aroused a great deal of interest and curiosity. And so you can be sure, beloved, that the Pharisee's house is filled with guests and with spectators, with guests and spectators who notice the ill-mannered behavior of Simon the Pharisee with respect to Jesus the Christ. No doubt it generated more than a few raised eyebrows and a few whispered comments. But not only that, beloved, for it also generated, we can see, a very strong reaction from a totally unpredictable corner. 
For among the spectators, there is a prostitute who also sees the insulting way in which the Savior has been treated. Some translations give the impression that she entered the house later on, but that's not really so. In reality, she entered the house either before or along with the Lord Jesus, only now having observed how the host has mistreated the Savior and overwhelmed by what Jesus has done for her, she pushes to the crowd, she approaches the Lord, and she stands behind Him. And there and then she proceeds to offer a sacrifice of gratitude and thanksgiving to Him. This woman has heard the Lord proclaim the freely offered love of God, the good news of God's love for sinners, even sinners like her. That news has overwhelmed her life, and it now triggers in her an emotional reaction, a deep desire to offer a grateful response. Standing behind the Savior, her tears of gratitude begin to flow. And they drop down from her face onto his feet. And they turn his dirty, dusty feet into mud. And then what to do? Well, spontaneously, she lets down her hair and she uses her hair to wipe the feet of the Savior. Now, of course, we today would say that's kind of a novel way in which to dry feet in the case of an emergency. But you have to understand that, that those who are watching all of this unfold see something that is not simply novel, but something that is scandalous. A woman was not allowed to let down her hair in the presence of other men. Only in the presence of her husband. And Jewish tradition said that if you let down your hair in the presence of other men, then your husband could divorce you. And so you see, the actions of this woman must have brought a gasp from the audience. And many people were offended. Only, beloved, she doesn't stop with one shocking action. She adds another to it. She realizes that Simon the Pharisee has also omitted the kiss of greeting. That she cannot totally undo. For such an action, if she imitated it exactly, would be totally misunderstood. But she can kiss his feet. And that is what she does repeatedly. And such an action is not only a compensation for what the Pharisee had refused to do, it is also a public gesture of great humility, total devotion, and utter respect. And finally, to offset the remaining insults to the Savior, there is one more thing that she can do. 
She can anoint him. Being a prostitute, she always carried with her a flask of ointment or perfume. It was one of the tools of the trade. Only now that she has discovered the Lord and his redeeming grace, she she doesn't need it any longer. And so she decides to use it for a far different purpose, a higher and a better one. She decides to anoint the Lord with it. But then the question arises, what part of his body will she put it on? To anoint his head would be unsinkable. Samuel may be allowed to anoint Saul and David on the head, but a sinful woman cannot anoint a rabbi on the head. That would be utterly preposterous and presumptuous. So what then? Well, she decides to anoint his feet. She pours her precious perfume on the feet of the one who has announced God's love to her, on the feet of the one who has been abused by this callous host. She's offering her love and trying to compensate for the insult that he has received. But nevertheless, beloved, as all of this is going on, we observe that Simon the Pharisee does not agree. Indeed, Simon, Simon is appalled by what this woman does and by the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ allows her to do these things to him. He assumes that Christ should have gotten up, wrapped his righteous robes around himself and withdrawn himself in great haste, as well as in deep indignation. But he doesn't do that. And you notice that causes the Pharisee to mutter. He says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. Clearly, his reaction within himself is one of contempt. He refers to Jesus as a prophet. And he uses a word for touch which clearly has sexual overtones and which points out that it's highly improper for her and him to have any contact together. Yes, Simon is very displeased. Displeased also because all of this greatly offends his Pharisaic outlook. Interestingly, the, the word Pharisee in Aramaic means separatist. And you may know they were the religious exclusives of their day. And they held themselves aloof from any and every contact that might defile them. This entailed an avoidance not only of the Gentiles, but 
not only of Hellenized Jews, but also of the common people and of what they called sinners. And sinners, that was their scornful label for all publicans and prostitutes, as well as for all the common people who failed to observe the tradition of the elders as they did and who also failed to observe all the stipulations of the ceremonial law. Instead of seeking to be holy in thought, word, and deed, while retaining relationships of love and care for all men, they withdrew from social contact with sinners and despised all those who did not do as they did. They became a holy club, And they were harsh and sensuous. They had no pity in their hearts for people in need, in ignorance, or in sin. And so clearly Simon is greatly embarrassed by what has transpired in his house. He's disgusted with the woman and in a way he is equally disgusted with Jesus Christ. He rejects the validity of her repentance. To him she's still and always will be a sinner. That'll never change. That's his attitude. That's his approach. And let's be honest for a moment, beloved, and acknowledge that this approach always lies close at hand. It even does so today in the church of Jesus Christ. It's it's easier, and that's perhaps because of our old nature to be hard and harsh and condemning and self-righteous. Being a Pharisee lies close at hand, not only to Simon, but I think in a way to all of us. It's something that we all need to be aware of and sensitive towards. It's easier, far easier to look down your long nose and condemn someone else than to forgive to restore. But then, beloved, notice the reaction of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You might say he goes on the offensive. And it's an offensive that begins with a very simple parable. Verse 41, Two men owed money to a certain moneylender, One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, beloved, that's a parable. That's a very, very simple story on one level. But, of course, you sense there's something deeper to it, don't you? But then notice this parable of three sentences, that's all. Notice how the Lord Jesus uses it. He asks Simon, 
Now, which of them will love him more? To which Simon reluctantly responds, the one, I suppose, who had the bigger debt cancelled. You see, in this parable, the two debtors are leveled in their need and neither is able to pay. The same grace of forgiveness is extended to both. The only difference between them is set forth in the amounts that they owe. Yet for the fact of their debt, for their inability to pay, and as for their need for grace, they stand together. But on another level, they do not stand together for the one who is forgiven the most will love the more. The deeper in debt you are, the more anxious you become. The more you are forgiven, the more you will rejoice. Now, beloved, up to this point, the parable teaches a real point and draws forth a true conclusion. But still, you might say it's kind of abstract and it's kind of hanging there in the air. And to be really helpful and to be really pointed in its application, it needs to deal with specifics. And that's not precisely what our Savior does. Whoever said that preaching is only explanation and not also application? For look, the Lord Jesus turns to the woman, looks at her, but you'll notice it says, he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, So here he's looking at this woman, but he's speaking to Simon the Pharisee. He says, do you see this this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. Now, beloved, on... Reading these words, there may have appeared a smile on our lips and a thought in our hearts. Good. The Pharisee has really been put in his place. He asked for it with his stuffed shirt, overly pious approach. But you know, such a reaction doesn't really do justice to what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is doing here. For there are really a number of shocking elements in in what he says and in what he does. And indeed, this story is filled with shockers. And they come not only from the prostitute, but they also come from the Christ. In the first place, the Lord Jesus dares here to criticize publicly a Pharisee. 
And that's something you never did in those days. You may have had your thoughts about them, but you never aired them, and you certainly never aired your thoughts and your criticisms in public. Shocker number one. Shocker number two is he he dares to compare a man with a woman and a Pharisee with a prostitute. And he does it in such a way that the woman is depicted as the noble character. Whereas the man is ignoble. Now you know to do that today is one thing. We have a society that's filled with a call for women's rights and equality. However, in the days of the Lord Jesus, society was dominated by men. And you never, ever compared the two. And you also never, ever let a woman come out on top. And certainly not a prostitute over a Pharisee. But yet that's precisely what our Savior did. And finally, one more thing, and that is just a shocking in a way, and that is that he he criticizes the hospitality that he has received. You know, if you're at all familiar with the world of the Middle East, you know that a guest states over and over again out of custom that he's unworthy of the hospitality that has been extended to him. Even if the hospitality has been rotten to the core, You still praise it to the sky. And to attack the hospitality offered, regardless of the circumstances, is unknown in fact or in fiction, in personal experience or in traditional history. But yet in this incident before us, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ makes an unprecedented attack on the inferior grudging quality of the hospitality that he has received. He says, you did not wet, give me any water for my feet. You did not give me a kiss. You did not put oil on my head. Simon did none of those things. The contrast is evident. Simon gave no kiss, the woman gives many kisses. Simon gives no water, the woman gives her tears. Simon gives no oil, not even cheap olive oil. The woman gives expensive perfume. And the upshot is the Pharisee is cold and grudging and inhospitable. But the woman is spontaneous and generous and devoted. And Christ praises the latter and he scorns the former. And beloved, after completing the comparison or better the contrast between the Pharisee and the prostitute, the Lord says about her and to her in verse 47, 
I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven her, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. The intensity of her love is a symptom of the intensity of her spiritual experience. She has experienced God's mercy, God's love, God's forgiveness. A tremendous burden has been lifted off her shoulders. She's free. She's restored again. Her whole outward bearing, her tears and her devotion constitute proof that through Jesus Christ she has experienced real liberation from sin. Oh, and Christ advertises that power too. He declares to her, your sins are forgiven. And that's not just talk. It's a fact. It's a declaration from the king. You know, our Lord Jesus Christ was never anxious to advertise the power of his miracles, his ability to cure diseases and to work miracles. And he often told his disciples, don't talk about this anymore. He never drew attention to such things. But when it came to advertising far and wide that he could solve for men and women the consequences of their sins and cure their souls, he was never hesitant. But the real essence of the Christian faith is not the spectacular, the cures, the miracles, the tongues. The essence of the Christian faith is forgiveness from God and with God and restoration. The problems of the soul are more important than the problems of the body. The need to heal wounded love is more urgent than the need to heal wounded limbs. The desire to bridge the gulf separating man from God is more fundamental than the desire to bridge the gulf between men. There is no greater need than the awareness that God can bring peace to troubled souls restoration to broken relationships, cleansing to troubled consciences, and forgiveness to a sin-filled life. And are we aware of that? Are we aware of that still? We realize very well, beloved, there will never be Any burning or lasting thankfulness or gratitude or enthusiasm for anything in the church and kingdom of God. Until people realize what Christ has done and what he has saved them from. Save them from sin, from death, from hell. Save them at an infinite cost. The cross. The place of forgiveness is the place from which all true love and devotion to Christ is born. 
The cross is the place where true gratitude begins, where evangelism begins, where mission work begins, where true Christian service begins. We cannot command men to love Christ. It is silly to tell men and women to stir themselves up to enthusiasm for this or that Christian cause. Love and gratitude can arise only as the spontaneous outcome of a faith that knows Christ, that knows Christ and is great. Forgiveness, love, and mercy. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.